It's the 8th of April, 2018, and this is episode 362 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And I'm Adam B. Levine. Today we're going to hit a couple of stories that can all be loosely classified as, it's not what you think. There was a story out about Coinbase and how Coinbase actually had a problem that was discovered late last year with a smart contract in the Ethereum space and how, had it potentially not been fixed, be able to give themselves an unlimited amount of Ethereum. And I went looking at this story and I, and I was like, all right, well, so this is another example of smart contracts just being really new technology and really kind of unsafe to develop because there are so many things that can go wrong with a smart contract that you create. As I looked into it more, actually what I found out is that this is not a problem where Coinbase created a smart contract. This is actually the first time in my memory where I think we've seen someone create a smart contract as a way to attack a centralized system and to try and essentially do like a fancy double spend attack. So I thought that was really interesting. I can get into the details more on what happened. It's adorable. It's like looking at Skynet's first baby steps. Yeah, I was thinking smart contracts do have a lot of loopholes. So I don't think it's unreasonable that you first thought that about the story, Adam, because that's exactly what I first thought. But yeah, I mean, things get complicated and complexity is kind of the enemy of security, as we all know. It seems like we have to keep reinventing the wheel over and over again. So I dug into this problem because I was like, okay, so what exactly happened here? And what it looks like happened is that somebody figured out that you could create a smart contract that performed a bunch of transactions in and of itself. And most of those transactions were valid transactions. In this case, they used 49 transactions that went to valid addresses that were essentially deposit addresses in this person or tester's Coinbase account. Except that the last transaction in this whole chain of transactions caused by the smart contract failed intentionally for you know a reason that they set up. This was used as a way to do, like I said, almost a fancy double spend attack where in the old days, it used to be that somebody would send Bitcoin to an address. And if they accepted it as a zero confirmation, then it was possible technically to have like another transaction that would sort of invalidate the prior one. And so this is something that we dealt with in Bitcoin by simply making it so that we don't accept zero confirmation transactions. We're paying attention to the memory pool and seeing, you know, if there are other transactions that look like they're trying to compete. And so essentially what they did with the smart contract is exactly the same thing. They set it up so they made a bunch of transactions that were all dependent on all of the transactions going through. And so when the last one failed, it caused all of the prior transactions, which would have looked confirmed potentially on the blockchain, not had a ton of confirmations, but they would have looked confirmed to instead completely reverse. And Coinbase's system wasn't checking to actually see whether or not these transactions were remaining valid in the system. Not everything about this was disclosed, so we're having to infer how this issue actually worked. But from all of the information that I've been able to see, this seems to be it. It's really just a fancy double spend attack. But because they put it in through a smart contract, Coinbase's system, since I don't think we've ever seen any attacks like this before, didn't know what to do with it. And so when that failure occurred, potentially it caused a very large issue for them. So basically, it was a smart contract being used to attack Coinbase's off-chain proprietary system. Right. So the analogous situation here is, I give you a check, right? 
And then you're like, okay, here's some dollar bills in exchange for that check. Mm -hmm. And then I go and I write another check that sends all my money out of my bank account from one place to another place. And I still have the dollar bills that you gave me. But now the check that you have is worthless since it's going to bounce. So it's the same sort of situation here, except they were using a smart contract and some of the complexity that could be built into it to do that. One of the interesting things about Ethereum compared to Bitcoin is that with Ethereum, it's possible to have transactions calling transactions calling transactions, right? Because smart contracts can be self-referential and can refer to other smart contracts as well. So Coinbase kind of looking at things as they come in has a difficult situation. But if you just look at the blockchain, right? If you just keep track of the transactions and keep track of you know the accounts that you've actually received something from, this is actually something that you can detect and pick up. So it was interesting to me, particularly that this was not only an issue, but this was an issue that occurred at Coinbase, which is arguably the best funded company in the space doing probably the most security reliant job. And yet it took essentially this coming up through a bug bounty program for it to actually be you know solved. When again, it's very analogous to these systems and situations that we've seen for years in Bitcoin. It's just now using smart contracts. Wait, so this was discovered through a bug bounty program. So that means that they didn't actually lose any money because of it. Well, so they wound up paying $10,000 from it. And they so this was actually discovered in December and reported. Well, I would push back on that. Coinbase is, as you said before, probably the most institutional of the blockchain related places you could go to purchase tokens. And one truth we know about institutionals, when they lose money, they never disclose they lost money because they'd rather eat the loss than let you lose confidence in their security. So all we know about Coinbase is that they never disclose if or when they lose money such that it leads one to assume that they must be extremely secure. Right. That's a good point. But the person who found this particular bug was participating in the bounty program to find bugs. That's the other thing, which is that how many people are malicious and then how many people are good? And then what are the incentives to use a zero day versus turn it in? Right, exactly. Because I was thinking that bounty rewards are usually not higher than the reward that you could just get from doing an attack. <laughs> but also, there are people who are maliciously looking through repos. Like, there are some contributors to some blockchain projects that are contributing on the basis of actively looking for zero days to maliciously attack that system with. It wouldn't surprise me if the bug bounty program wasn't where they found the bug, it was exploited, and then somebody who was a good guy found it and then also turned it into them. Sort of like a, a zero-day whistleblower. And the problem with a system like Coinbase is how little transparency they have. Like a real bank, if Wells Fargo got hacked and money was stolen, they wouldn't disclose it unless they were compelled to because they'd rather you have confidence in Wells Fargo. Anyway, I'm just trying to dissuade the notion that there's no counter-indicator for is Coinbase actually secure because it's in all of their interests and all of their investors' standard operating procedure to give off the impression they're secure by never disclosing when they lose money. Yeah, no, that's a really good point to make. Thank you. We don't know what the real story was. Well, and just to kind of piggyback on that, actually thinking about it, you're totally right. And Mt. Gox did the same thing. Mt. Gox, turns out, incurred lots of losses through a variety of methods over the course of more than a year in hindsight that wasn't actually disclosed until there was such a problem that it could no longer be preserved. I don't think that's what's happening at Coinbase, but you're right. I don't even know how you would solve that problem. I mean, I don't think you can solve that problem. I think inherently you have to trust the people whose best interest is served by covering up really anything like this that happens so long as they can cover it up. 
There's a really easy way to resolve that. One is in the immediate aftermath of Mt. Gox's collapse, people were very interested in proof of solvency and trying to figure out methods to prove that someone was solvent. And one of the methods, so old that people forgot about it, is a sidechain. And the notion was that you have a sidechain managed by all of the major regulated exchanges. And then you know that as long as they're representing, you know what, that just reintroduces the same problem. You know, this is a hard problem. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a hard problem. I mean, so the, the upside is that we do know to a certain extent when things have happened and damage has been done to the extent that it can no longer be repaired. <laughs> and I guess actually now suddenly the conversation has pivoted to governments too. If you can kind of keep your dominance and keep confidence, really, and it's the case in both of these cases, then it's very much in your best interest to do so. And it's really only at the point that it, you no longer have much to lose or the risk on the other side, right? So like if it was illegal to say these things, right? Conversely, one of my favorite stores in Manhattan is called B&H. They sell audio and video equipment and they just go through an insane amount of volume. And B&H is one of these weird stores where you go into there and you can give them multiple hundred dollar bills and they don't even bother to check the authenticity of the hundred dollar bills. Because the amount of volume they go through and the type of people they cater to, they've just done the equation that it, it costs them more in brand, in reputation, and even in timeline to be able to process orders to do that sort of check, at least in any way that I can discern, than any other store that I've been to. And, and maybe Coinbase is sort of taking a similar approach to that, where they're just weighing the benefits and the negatives to allowing themselves to be harmed versus receiving harm and then realizing that even net net they'll make more money yeah i think you could be right this isn't the first time someone's been able to create unlimited tokens one of my favorite examples slightly different because it didn't happen to an exchange back in the early days of bitcoin somebody made several billion or trillion bitcoins by exploding a buck in bitcoin and the other exploit which was uh, my favorite exploit in the history of blockchain is gavin andreessen he put a bug fix in, didn't tell anybody what it was, but just said, don't worry about it. Just trust me. And then after everyone updated, said, oh, by the way, there was this exploit that allowed anybody to send Bitcoin remotely from anyone else's wallet. Ooh, <laughs> that's a good one. And he's like, yeah, I was sort of sitting on that one till I figured out a way to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> like He didn't let anyone else in on the bug until he had fixed it. And that anyway. Bitcoin has had its problems too, but those are on-chain problems. The problem is that whenever you have an off-chain solution, there will always be room to have discrepancies between what an off-chain balance represents as the tokens and what the settlement system represents as those tokens. I don't think we're ever going to escape those problems. Today's show is sponsored by EasyDNS.com. EasyDNS first started sponsoring the Let's Talk Bitcoin show back in 2013, and they fall into the early libertarian adopters camp. In today's world, it doesn't really matter if you're running a blockchain startup or just have an opinion. You want a company who thinks your rights matter at an ideological level. And for my websites, that's EasyDNS. Oh, and for those of you already living in the future, you can pay your bill with Bitcoin or Ethereum. So when you're thinking domains, mail servers, or DNS provisioning, think EasyDNS.com. Now, back to the show. So 
So for a long time, we've talked about the idea of using blockchains to help in other places besides money, because really what blockchains are is on the one hand, they're a good way to track ownership of something. And the reason they're a good way to track ownership of something is because they're a secure, distributed and oftentimes decentralized record of who owns what, which makes it very difficult to kind of compromise that. One area this has been kind of always popular from an intellectual standpoint, but problematic from an implementation standpoint, has been the idea of applying voting to the blockchain and taking elections, things that are highly politically contentious, very important, and that have a need for transparency, but which historically have either used incredibly manual systems, which are vulnerable to certain types of manipulation, or even which use software, which is proprietary and very dubious in terms of whether it's actually doing the job or has a political opinion of its own. Recently, we saw a headline saying Sierra Leone's national election used blockchain technology from a company called Agora to help essentially introduce blockchain technology into the idea of uh, national elections. And it was an interesting story because the first thing that I heard about it after seeing the initial story was a denial from the National Electoral Commission of Sierra Leone, which said, and I quote, the National Electoral Commission uses an in-house database to tally election results. This database was originally developed for the elections held in 2012. It was then expanded and updated prior to the 2018 elections. Database was developed in C++ and runs on MySQL, neither of which are open source applications, and it does not use blockchain in any way. And so I said to myself, well, what happened? Why is there a discrepancy here? And so I went digging a little bit more. And I discovered that what actually happened is that Agora was there as a certified election observers. And they observed, it looks like, about 250 precincts out of a substantially larger number than that. So what they did was they took the idea of being an international observer, which is someone who's there to assure the validity of elections by making sure that no shenanigans are happening and being present while vote counting is happening and tallies and things like that. And then they're taking that information and they're putting it onto the blockchain. And this is something that I think is both significant and insignificant, because <laughs> it's insignificant because in reality, this had almost no impact. But it's significant because the results that they generated from it mirrored very closely the results that actually were representative of, of the entire election. And so I just kind of want to take this as a jumping off point to talk about voting and the blockchain entirely as a concept, because again, it's something that comes up periodically. I've always been very skeptical of it. Because voting is one of those things where you want transparency from a high level. So you want to know that people voted and you want to know who they voted for. And you want to know for sure that that person voted for that person. But you don't really want to have the information be public or even really accessible of who voted for who, because there's potentially, you know, retribution that can come back on people, intimidation and just like all sorts of vectors that become very problematic if you know that. And so the blockchain as a neutral structure has always seemed like a very interesting kind of vehicle for that, since it is inherently sort of this public record, unless you're doing somewhat more complicated things. You know, Adam, I'm also skeptical of it for the reason that you gave and a couple of other reasons. One is the problem that I see in a lot of these applications of blockchain to like real life problems, which is there always has to be a point where you tie in the real life part with the blockchain part. And linking those together, I think, can become a really weak link. For example, like, how do you track the one person, one vote? How do you identify people? Who are the humans that sort of let people into the polls and check their IDs and things like that, or issue the IDs in the first place? 
some places don't even have voter ID requirements. So how are you going to make sure that everybody only voted once and blah, blah, blah. There's always problems in tying the real life to the blockchain. Same thing with like property ownership, right? You could say, oh, I own this property. It's registered on the blockchain. But okay, well, tell that to the bears on your property or tell that to the squatters on your property, right? Like, how are you going to enforce that? They don't care about a blockchain. They don't care what it says. So I think there's some problems in linking real life with blockchain world. And also, when people say blockchain nowadays, they mean all different kinds of things, right? Like when we say blockchain, we might mean something that is immutable, secured by proof of work or some other valid method, highly secure, uneditable, uncorruptible, open source, censorship resistant, and all those things that are principles of Bitcoin, you know, the prototypical blockchain. But when a lot of people use that word lately, what they mean is like proprietary blockchains, blockchains, right, that are built by a bank and exist on the bank's own servers and the consensus is reached among the bank's own servers and they can be edited if you have the right authorizations and things like that. So they don't really mean blockchain in the same sense, like the word loses its meaning. And so which blockchain are we promoting for elections, right? The incentives are there. And I think I could see governments wanting a federated proprietary blockchain to do elections with. And then it's basically no different than just electronic voting machines. And so we're back to square one. It's not really a blockchain, right? You're not using any of the advantages of a blockchain to secure the election with. But there are lots of people who are super, super skeptical of electronic voting machines. There's a lot of allegations of fraud in every election where counties use electronic machines. People are reporting, oh, I tried to vote for the Democrat and it counted me for the Republican or whatever. People are skeptical of them, maybe for good reason, even though there are problems with paper ballots as well. And so a lot of places still use paper ballots that are kind of scanned by these Scantron machines or even read manually. Yeah. Or sometimes there's a recount and then they have to be manually checked and the count always comes out slightly different. So the machines aren't perfect either and neither are paper ballots necessarily. But blockchain has a different set of problems as well. And I think it could easily end up just being another form of electronic voting machines. And then we haven't really advanced any kind of technology with that or freedom or democracy or whatever. Well, it gets even worse than that, because when people have suspicions about electronic voting, one of the issues they're getting to without necessarily understanding at a level of depth to know that that's one of the issues they're getting at is that none of these things are open source. Yeah, exactly. No one's publicly audited or reviewed Diebolt's code. Like, no one knows what's running on these things. It's just a big trust us machine. And I think one of the scarier things is when someone says we're going to conduct voting on a blockchain is, well, at the very least, is that code even open source? Because I could imagine Diebolt saying, hey, guys, look, we're using a blockchain. Can we review the code? No, 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 no. Oh, just trust us. Oh, everything works great. And then, hey, they are using a blockchain, but it's exactly the same problem we had before. So those are all valid points, and I agree with you on those, (laughs) but I'm going to disagree with you on a bunch of things. Early on, we saw people trying to do what I would call the kind of all-crypto approach. And the all-crypto approach was the idea that you would have every person who's going to vote have an identity. And if you remember Aurora coin back in the day, uh, it was one of the first kind of airdrop coins. It was for Iceland. And what they did, and I believe this was replicated in the Scottish version too, is they used the national ID numbers 
for every citizen and made it so that citizens could essentially grab their allocation of the token as a way to do that. So you could use the same sort of thing there. Another thing is that you're right. There's this trusted interface that happens between whenever you have something that happens off of the blockchain that you want the blockchain to know about or you want the blockchain to record. But again, we already have that type of system. We just don't use a blockchain for it, right? So election observers, many, many different kind of competing interests and organizations exist within these more controversial elections. And so what happened here is that a single group of election observers committed this data to the blockchain. And what I think we could see is perhaps a blockchain that's actually either run by election observers in a transparent way so that none of them are responsible for it individually, but they can all can contribute to it broadly. And then you could start to see these things emerge even without having kind of that direct interface. That really is the problem, right? Is like, on the one hand, you have a system that uses the conventional method and that has to be actually pushed into the blockchain. And it's there's potential to cause problems there in that interface. And then on the other side, you've got the, well, we're not going to use interfaces, but everybody has to be using the technology. Otherwise, you wind up getting disenfranchised. What I'm hearing, Adam, is that you're saying that what we should do is take some sort of real world issued identity certificate and then credential that identity the ability to issue a voting certificate that would then be pooled into an election, right? <laughs> so what you're saying is, if only we could solve these problems with voter ID. Well, so it solves the problem with voter ID to a certain extent, but then there's also the issue of not trusting your government, right? And so that's where blockchains come in, is because the government doesn't wind up being the one that's actually recording the information. It winds up being other organizations that are already there acting as observers. Now, of course, there if there are problems with the observer organizations, or if there are problems with like what happens to the votes before they ever get to the election observers, there are just like a lot of places in a system like this where something can go wrong. No question about that. Well, I like to think of the requirements of the use case, and I, I can't speak to other nations like Sierra Leone, but in America, at least, I don't think the fear is that people are assuming that by having a voter ID, you can track vote to ID. It's just the mere notion of a voter ID seems antithetical to the very being of a very large portion of Americans population. <laughs> so I don't necessarily know how we could ever, if that's the barrier to overcome, say, hey, basically, this is an electronic methodology that attaches a voting certificate to an ID and have them not say, oh, you globalist scum, that's a national ID voter chip notification system on both sides, because one, it's a, a national ID. And then on the other side, it's, well, poor people can't handle getting IDs. Don't forget, there are people on all sides of the political spectrum that take advantage of loose voter ID laws or whatever and use that to their advantage. What other types of applications come to mind besides voting that kind of have this set of problems? Because it seems like Again, people are talking increasingly and very excited about putting lots of things on the blockchain. But whether we're talking about kind of identity or we're even just talking about physical goods, it seems like they kind of all have that problem of the interface between the real world and the blockchain has necessarily a centralized component of somebody putting that information on there. And until we can figure out how to solve that and have the blockchain literally crawling, you know, the internet for certain keywords, a la, you know, that book, Damon, I'm not really clear how we get around any of these inherent centralization problems at the interface level. By the way, if you're interested in blockchain and you need a good book, Daniel Suarez's Damon is the book of the month. <laughs> can you give us a summary? I haven't read it. In Daniel Suarez's Damon, which came out a year before Bitcoin, or he wrote it a year before Bitcoin. 
there is a multi-billionaire who programmed this peer-to-peer video game based system and had billions and billions of dollars. And then he dies. And then a couple of weeks later, basically these computer bugs happen that trigger IoT devices that create some murder. The police investigate it and they figure out that they know exactly who murdered the guy. It was this eccentric billionaire who died a couple of weeks ago. So they know who the killer is. But what he did was he digitized all of his billions of dollars, put it into this distributed video game architecture, and then has the system crawl uh, news articles and then predicated on if then sort of calls to is this present in the news, then do this. The program pays out his billions of dollars to then uh, go on a spring of murders. So the police know who the serial killer is. Now they need to stop the decentralized cryptocurrency framework that he invented to create the change that he wanted to create. That sounds super interesting. Damon is a play because a Damon's like a software Damon that runs in the background, but it's also Demon. Yeah, that's right. He proceeds to attempt to destabilize and take down the entire global financial system using this decentralized peer-to-peer payment system. Totally worth reading. (laughs) I think that Dan Larimer was talking about decentralized autonomous corporations. And I think that is like very small pockets of exploring consensus formation and voting that shareholder votings and autonomous corporations should be structures that we should test voting with because it's a much lower sort of import and it's entirely self-contained to the actors who choose to enter that system that i would like to see a very robust and healthy autonomous corporations vote with their shareholder methods in ways uh, that works and is resilient before we start saying, let's take uh, the infrastructure of nation states and take all these people who don't have buy-in to blockchain and sort of compel them to use it. Earlier, you mentioned that the US would have a lot of problems with this. And I actually agree with that. And that's kind of why I think that places like Sierra Leone or places that have potentially not so certain uh, and I mean, again, in the U.S., there's still lots of questions about it. But I so, think like nations that don't have two years of a special investigator looking at the integrity of the election result. Well, yes, my my point just broadly is that there are places in the world where there are a lot of international election observers because lacking that sort of thing. And even sometimes with that sort of presence, elections aren't carried out fairly and aren't counted fairly. And so I think that that's kind of the argument, even without the technology connection. And I agree with you, it is better for blockchain protocols that are claiming to be decentralized and to have these kind of mechanisms. I think it is better for them certainly to eat their own dog food. But I think that it's important, frankly, it happens on both sides, because there is a need on both sides. There's a technical need on the blockchain side, because we need ways to actually figure out how to do this. And then in the real world side, there's really more of a social problem and a question of, if this is all about creating a global opt out, right, then every country in the world is effectively using their own proprietary, whether it's proprietary software or not, but proprietary system of voting and recording the votes. One of my favorite use cases that I heard was there was a gentleman who conducts sort of inspections on the integrity of votes in African nations, and he deployed ocular scanning. So it would scan your retina in order to vote. And the way that they did it, the iris scanning was not to determine who you were, or a form of credential, it was just to know that a person with a single eye didn't conduct more than one vote. So it was a a double spend resistant method. And that was this nice way of not having an identity, but having an identifier that at least knew that the election wasn't double spent. And that, to me, seemed like a really cool middle ground between the two. Well, I agree with you, Jonathan, that the the testing ground should be smaller and voluntary 
organizations that people opt into instead of kind of doing this guinea pig experiment <laughs> with entire nations that a lot of the people in some of these places don't even have access to computers necessarily. I don't know how many people in Sierra Leone even have good internet access or, or water, for example. So I agree with not forcing people to take part in this unproven technology kind of experiment. I mean, we know that pharmaceutical companies go around the world and sort of recruit people into clinical trials, and it's not always considered the most ethical thing. So why should we do that with blockchains? Figure out the kinks and bugs. But Stephanie, we're doing it with unimportant people in unimportant nations. Surely it doesn't matter there. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) I mean, that's really what some people think. They think it's a great testing ground to do an experiment. And those are actual people with lives and they're human beings just like you. I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that, again, this was not something that was forced on anybody. This was something that was done on top of what they were already doing, right? Yeah, for sure. It's good to remember that that in this case, it wasn't actually a blockchain election. It was just the international observers, which was Agora, were reporting the results on a blockchain after they had observed. And they weren't the only international observers, too. It looks like, again, they were a relatively small proportion of them. So this is just a baby step. But at the same time, there are actually people who are saying, yeah, like, let's put it on a blockchain right now. Let's do national IDs and elections and everything on blockchains. And it's usually suggested in countries where the national infrastructure is considered corrupt or lacking or whatever. They have problems with that. For sure. Yeah. So I just, again, want to make it clear we're not taking a stance against Agora or anything like that here. This is just, again, an excuse kind of to talk about this. Right. Systems run in parallel are sometimes the best ways to experiment because it's just a redundancy. Right. I actually had several other stories that all fall into this category of it's not what you think. And I think that that for me was the real kind of theme of this week is just that headlines out there are increasingly misleading and just don't really encapsulate the complexity of whatever it is that it's reporting. Well, my favorite example of this is to not make it Agora focused. During the U.S. presidential elections, the primaries rather, the Texas Libertarian Party decided to conduct their election on a blockchain. And they used Nick Spanos's um, election system. I forget what it's called. They were conducting the election that way for their primary. And I was hanging out with one of the former heads of the Libertarian Party for the state of Texas, who happened to work for the company Factum. The entire time the election was happening, you could see just the stress emanating from him because he's like, I actually understand blockchain and I actually understand the Libertarian Party. And for the love of God, I'm like staring at a, a NASCAR race, hoping everything doesn't blow up. yeah oh man speaking of blow-ups i remember the first blockchain election that we actually saw which was back in 2014 after swarm had funded and they worked with the counterparty foundation to do an entirely on-chain election process and i think they got about a day into the or it might have been several it was it was supposed to take like a week and they got a couple of days in and the system just completely failed oh my gosh and they wound up having to go to an entirely different system at the last minute i don't know man did the system fail or do they not like the result <laughs> <laughs> well in that particular circumstance i'm pretty sure it failed but indeed it is a risk well either way this stuff is harder than people think to to get right well i mean again we continue to see that that there just aren't that many applications using blockchains right now that are actually doing useful things in real life because you have both the bridge problem and just this stuff is really hard and a lot of times people are trying to also shove a square peg into a round hole which doesn't help things one of my favorite xkcds is if you google physicists it'll show up 
And the physicist one says that there's nothing more infuriatingly arrogant in life than a physicist learning about a new liberal arts topic because they think that they can model everything with pre-existing simple designs that they have in physics and that everything can be modeled by physics. And obviously, well, physics is such a hard science. All of, all of this applied science should be able to apply to what you're trying to solve. And I think that's starting to become true of blockchainers as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by EZDNS.com and featured content from Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. It also featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Send questions or comments to Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.